This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. It is my pleasure to welcome back to the studio for his monthly roundup of what's going on in the world of comic books, graphic novels and sequential visual narrative, Mr Bernard Callio. Mr Richard Watts, hello. It's, it's lovely to be back in the, 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 the studio of the perfume genius himself. That's, that's to say you. Oh. <laughs> I'm not doused in cologne, but I'll take it as a compliment. Um, uh, yes, as always, there just seems to be too much to talk about with comics, which is great. Uh, and the first thing, uh, uh, the first thing, the first comic I w- really want to um, delve into has the word two, T-O-O, two, too, too many comics, uh, two in its title. And it's a book called Eyes Too Dry uh, by a pair of local Melbourne makers, uh, Jessica Tassavoli and Alice Chipkin. This book um, I uh, uh, first read a couple of couple of weeks ago. Bought it from Readings, which is where where you can get it from. And there's a very good review. I don't have a copy of it here. I just looked everywhere this morning. I just went, "Where is it? I'm going to get home, and it's going to be right there, staring at me." Of course, so I wanted to hand it to you because it's a beautiful package. And there's a, a good review on uh, on a, a, a site called The Suburban Review. So The Suburban Review, and you're looking for a book called Eyes to Dry by Jessica Tassavoli and Alice Chipkin. And it's the subtitle to this book is A Graphic Memoir About Heavy Feelings. And it's a, gra- it's a graphic novel and it's a, a long book. Um, and it examines um, uh, Tava, uh, Jessica's depression, um, and it as being this enormous uh, issue object in the, this, this pair's friendship. And the way it, the way that uh, that um, she's cared for, but also the way it's handled and the way it distorts relationships. Um, and the book itself is remarkable because it's a conversation between this, these two authors. So you get a section in Jessica's comics voice. And then you get this amazing little handover sequence, and then you're looking at a sequence written written from Alice's point of view, and so the, it gets hit, it gets handed back and forth. So it's cl- it's so it's a conversation as in a graphic form, precisely so. But it's really it's also a piece of storytelling because they're telling the story of a particularly well the history of the the depression, the mental illness, and then um, the uh, you know a very intense time of it. And so what it does, I think, as well is it show because clearly they've then gone and decided to make this book about these heavy feelings as they, as they have beautifully referred to them, and um, so it's. Comics making as processing of those things and uh, as therapy. I, yes, well, yes, I would say I would say so. But 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 because it's so uh, live and so raw, this book. Um, uh, and the voices are very distinctive. The comics voices are very distinctive, not incredibly refined. Oh, oh, you know, one of them is more a bit more cartoonish, uh, and the other one is more realish. Um, but really, I feel you've got these people's voices as they are at the coal front of working at this, you know, helping uh, someone to survive. Frankly, and you know, really, it's a survivor. Um, tale and and thus incredibly compelling and um, your you, I anyway read it in a just a, 
of just powering through the pages, you know. So I really recommend that um, uh, as 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 a, as a chronicle of, of of this experience for these two people, and, and yeah, their, their wider friendship circle, of course, as well. Um, but also as a, mo- a use of the form as archaeology, as digging into, as 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 naming naming stuff that's so hard to to come to terms with, and you know, it's, it just exists and and obtrudes upon your whole life, and yeah. So it's, I think it's a remarkable. Uh, achievement. So that's Eyes Too Dry by Alice Chipkin and Jessica Tavasoli? Ta- yes. Or Tavasoli? Tassavoli? Yes. Uh, yeah, and, and I got my... I think you can get it at readings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's a... Uh, on the suburbanreview.com, you'll be able to find a, a short commentary and slash review about it, including presenting some of the images. You get some of the pages there, yeah, yeah, which, yeah. Is, which is great. Yeah. Okay, so that's, yeah, that's a remarkable undertaking. Now, before you talk about oh, your next comic, yes, guess what? what I've been doing all weekend Drawing. and the last week? No. I've been reading comic books, <sighs> as, as, you, as is unsurprising. Oh, of course. But I've been reading old Doctor Who comic books. Wow, the ones that were produced in... Was any of those written by Alan Moore? Like, what, what, Moore did write some back yeah. in, the, in the, the... Because Doctor Who magazine, which is... Was originally Doctor Who Weekly, yes. and then it became Doctor Who Monthly, yes. uh, and now it's just I think just called Doctor, Doctor Who, Who Magazine. Yeah. Uh, uh, has an ongoing comic strip. Uh, no, yes, uh, <laughs> and what, one of the things that I'm doing at the moment is rereading some of the the comics from the 80s after the show has been taken off the air. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and it's really interesting. You can see the the shift in comic book writing style because. The earlier comics are all just one-off, little one-off, four-page, six-page stories. Yes. And suddenly you get into a different era where they're just going, well, let's have a narrative that run like a story arc that runs through and, col- and so you ha- it becomes a sequential story month by month by month. Mm. And it's fascinating to see, A, I think that's developing just because of when as the medium becomes more sophisticated and you can see that playing out and also part of it's apparently economic because the, the sales figures were going up for the magazine <laughs> and they knew it wasn't going to be cancelled so they could actually experiment <laughs> yeah. and take a risk by telling stories month by month. So but you're lifting up the magazines and looking at each four no, page? Uh, no. Uh, they've is... been uh, collected by an English publisher okay. Panini okay. Uh, and it's just really, A, I'm a, of course a, a big Doctor Who fanboy so I'm currently up to reading the stories of the 11, no, the 8th Doctor, uh, the Paul McGann doctor um, but it and the writing is so clear you know how sometimes when you pick up uh, a comic based on whether it's based on a character you know or when it's written by someone you know or about someone you know and you can just hear their voice mm. so clearly mm. this is very much the case here so, so I, I basically spent all weekend and the past couple of nights when I haven't been going out to the theatre sitting at home reading old Doctor Who comics it's, it's great it's, fun it's, it's just amazing to immerse it's, it's almost like a, a fluid or something you know that you, you immerse yourself in both the the writing obviously but but also the, the particular thickness of line that that particular uh, drawer makes of the doctor that you're you know it's it's a very it's it's such a voice medium i think you know and it's really it's it's a, that's a lovely thing to immerse yourself in and it's fascinating in a graphic in graphic form that 
all the old wonky special effects <laughs> that you used to occasionally wince at, like when a wall would wobble or something. Uh, none of those problems. Yeah. Much vaster sets and scales. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's grand. Back to you. Grand. Um, very, very glad to hear about that. Okay, so, oh, this is good. This is a nice segue. Nice, nice segue, um, Mr. Perfume Genius over there. Um, so I want to talk about um, my buddy at Melbourne Museum where I work, Eddie, the comics, the comics Noah, um, talked to me. He said, have Bernard, have you checked out DC's Flintstones comic? I've heard about this. This is an adult reimagining of the Flintstones. Uh-huh. Inserting things like racial prejudice uh-huh. and uh, kind of cults and yes. aliens. Yes, and- and it on paper, like not it, not just on paper. In this conversation, <laughs> an adult reimagining <laughs> the Flintstones. <laughs> you either think it's going to be turgid and dreadful in that everything must be dark and gritty, sure, superheroed sure. kind of way, which drains all the joy and the colour out of the pages. Well, precisely, sometimes. yeah. And let's not forget that people like Alan Moore and Frank Miller started that trend off in the eighties. And for God's sakes, DC. <laughs> It's run its course, <laughs> let it go. But, no, I, I've just been recently reading some online commentary about this Flintstones yes. comic and looking at some of the panels and yes. images and so forth. Yes, I must, I must say that's my experience of it as well. So I went to a place called dorkly.com, D-O-R-K-L-Y.com, and they've got a, um, a pretty good um, uh, article about it with lots of uh, pages of the artwork, which is really very necessary because really you go... Because it is drawn, you know, semi-realistically. What? How does Fred Flintstone <laughs> end up being like someone that could possibly physically be real in the world? But they've done it. Um, yeah, so DC have got a few of these old, old I think, they're, are they Hanna-Barbera properties? Anyway, apparently Wacky Races has been redone as a sort of a Mad Max sort of. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but, um, they're, yeah, they, I mean, they're tackling, you know, your issues. Um, so Marriage equality. Well, that's very interesting because marriage, so Wilma and Fred's marriage is frowned upon because it's like it's seen as this weird new age sort of thing. So they get yelled at like, get back in, into the sex cave like nature intended. Uh, <laughs> a child deserves several fathers and about a dozen mothers. <laughs> So, yeah, and the, the notion of marriage yes, is this yes, newfangled, yeah, oh, very, modern, strange yeah. and destructive social force. It's, it's very, very funny. Um, just even from the little bits you see. And they, they meet their old gay friends, Adam and Steve, outside the Homo Erectus bar. <laughs> of course they're called Adam and Steve. <laughs> so it just looks... It look, If nothing else, it looks like a, a, bunch, of, a bunch of fun. And a clearly, as you're saying, uh, Richard, I think, you know, it probably stumbles sometimes into hammy-handedness. Um, but uh, you know, make, it made me want to pick up a, a couple of issues yes. and, and properly read yeah, them. Yeah, 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 sure. And, and it reinforces that just because somebody is resurrecting an old property doesn't mean it can't be done well. And we've certainly seen uh, for anybody who's been a baby boomer or Gen X or Gen Y, you've seen old nostalgic childhood properties mm. resurrected and brought back to life as a movie mm. franchise or a TV series. Mm. And often they're done really badly mm. uh, and they're incredibly cynical and, and shallow and you, whether it's, I don't know, the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise or sure. the Transformers films or or what have you. But this is a, 
perhaps an example of the fact that it can be done with intelligence yeah. and flair. And I think maybe again to say that comics are a better form to do it in because not as much as invested in a, you know, in a movie, gosh, you know, there's, there's a gazillion dollars that are invested and so you have to get it past all sorts of producers who have all sorts of agendas. But, you know, in, in, in comics, there's, I think it's a more experiment. I mean, if to get back to the first book we're talking about, I was talking about Eyes Too Dry, you know, that's an incredibly experimental piece of writing um and you know it's comics is a great form a great laboratory comics is a great laboratory folks um and as i've been saying as i've been teaching comics recently i mean i think all books probably maybe all art are empathy machines um but i think comics because they ask us to look into people's eyes you know dot eyes as they may be but but you know they're asking us again and again to imagine ourselves into other people's um shoes so i think um those eyes too dry, and the Flintstones <laughs> are asking. Are asking. Yeah, you know, ta- it tackles um, animal rights. Uh, there's the quarry owner, Mister Slate, who is a bit racist about the Cro-Magnons that he's just um, he's just uh, hired. And the Cro-Magnon, the, he gets, says, "Hey, Flintstone, come in here and teach these Cro-Mags." What's and, and that one of the Cro-Mags says, "Actually, we're Neanderthals, not Cro-Magnons." <laughs> if you want to see some panels from that comic and uh, some some discussion about it, dorkly.com, D-O-R-K-L-Y. But just Google Flintstones, or one word, and Dorkly, D-O-R-K-L-Y, and it's the very first thing that comes up. Yeah, and it's really, and really the, the, the major thing is just seeing the Fred, I think, isn't it? It's just like, wow, yeah, it's, it, you know, he's still enormous. Yeah, I'm going to have to go out and buy a copy of that comic, I think, <laughs> a, a, a few issues just to see whether it's really as good as the writers are claiming. But yeah, sounds great fun. Um We've got another minute or so. Yeah, um, there's a there's a la- If you are in Castlemaine this weekend, uh, you can go to the launch of Essence uh, by from Dark Hope Comics by Sabine Schmidt, writer, and Phil Spinks, uh, drawer. And so this this book is being launched on Saturday, thirteenth of May, one thirty to three thirty at the local. 233 Barker Street, Castlemaine. Um, and it's a uh, uh, Phil's being, I've got to make a discla- disclaimer, unclaimer. I'm a mate of, a mate of Phil's. Um, I'm a mate of half the comic makers in Australia. <laughs> so Stop. Just, just, let's take it as red, shall we? Um, but uh, this is part of his Dark Hope exploration. It's it's a um, it's a project. So we've had it. We've had one book already. Uh, this Lydia Dark character who is a sort of like a meme, I suppose, who makes her way through uh, human history and prehistory. And in this in this book, Essence, we're following the fortunes of a woman uh, who is a scribe in a scriptorium, uh, maybe. For, Four, four thousand BC. Anyway, BC. Sometime BC. Not Bernard Calio, but just BC before before Christ. So Neolithic. Yeah. Nice. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks very much, uh, uh, Mr. Watts. Uh, and um, uh, they are really interested. Sabine and Phil are exploring in this the um, sort of human um, storytelling and, in fact, music as well. And uh, uh, 
the practices are artistic. You know, this is a this is a comic book about a woman who's a writer who's transcribing old texts and bringing them through into the modern day of the Neolithic period. And so it's a it, she's a writer. She's a writer. So it's it's you're following a writer, and then inter- interspersed, you have these incredible action sequences where where saber tooth cats attack people in 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 the ice and. Um, so this is that's essence of uh, Sabine Schmidt and Phil Spinks being launched this weekend. Okay, um, check out that one. And yeah. interesting, just looking at the the style. It, it's okay. So she's not in the Neolithic. I have, I'm I'm now reading the back cover. Oh, thank you. Um, Nahara lives two thousand three hundred years ago. So uh, look, that's you know, it is BC. The, it is BC. It, it is BC. Just BC. But because she's then reading stories of an earlier time, she's reading and transcribing stories of what appears to be the Ice Age, for example. That's, that's the story so, that she's yeah. reading. Thank you very much. So, Thanks. And, no, my pleasure. And it, it looks really intriguing. There's a really um, kind of visceral, not heavy kind of, uh, visual style, but there's a real solidity to, mm. the, to the drawing. Mm. Uh, if, you know, if you know Steve Bissett from the, the Swamp Thing days of Alan Moore, I, I always think of Steve Bissett's work when I look at, uh, when I look at Phil's hair, uh, that sort of... Uh, interesting panel layouts, uh, you know, take to dragging your eye and, around the and page. Some almost fine line etching work in some of the detail of uh, the the crinkles in the corners of people's mm. eyes, and yeah, looks really intriguing. Mm, mm, okay, so yep, that's, uh, that's published essence. by Dark Hope Comics. Yep. Uh, Dark Hope Essence and uh, part two of a series. Indeed, yeah. indeed. This is one of the. I think one of the things that scares people off about comic books is that because a series might be so well established. Uh, People might perhaps go. Oh, where do I start? Where do I start? Yeah. And do I have to go back and buy all the twenty-seven issues mm. beforehand, or five hundred issues beforehand, <laughs> sure. or whatever the case may be? Yeah, you don't. No, really. As we were saying, as you were saying, they're being re, they're being retold all the time. You know, it's a, it's a, it's it's a, it's an arcane form, sure. Uh, but they they're, they're rehearsing, re, retelling uh, all, all all the time. I think a comic, you know, there's always you know, for, for, for like, like so much art, it's been continually reinterpreted, uh, rediscovered, remade. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. Spider Man Three, anyone? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Bernard, we'll catch you in a month's time. Fantastic. See you then. Bye. From the Monash Gallery of Art, curator Stephen Zagala joins us to talk about Under the Sun. Reimagining Max Dupain's Sunbaker, which is on now until the 6th of August at Monash Gallery of Art in Ferntree Gully Road, Wheelers Hill. Stephen, good morning. Good morning. So, Max Dupain's Sunbaker, it's, would it be fair to say that it's the quintessential Australian photograph? Hmm, that's a big call. It, it certainly has come to represent something quintessential about Australia, particularly through the, the late 20th century where I suppose, for various reasons, we, we struggled with our national identity. It's, I mean, it, it is a remarkable image. And what this exhibition does is it's then invited 15 contemporary Australian artists from uh, and some of them from quite diverse backgrounds to, to respond mm. to the work. Yeah, it's actually, uh, and it's one of the success stories of the now defunct Catalyst program in that we got um, the Australian Centre for Photography secured a lot of funding to pay artists directly to commission them to do new work. So 15 contemporary artists ranging from their late 20s to their mid-70s have been commissioned to produce brand new work and that, that's one, certainly one of the real excitements of the show 
for us in hosting it is not to be showing work that's been shown in different places over and over again, but we've actually been able to... And, you know, there's lots of good reasons why artists have to recycle their work and show it again and again, but to have this opportunity to commission brand new work is um, is wonderful. So, yeah, it's a, a wide range of perspectives from contemporary artists responding to this iconic image and what it's come to represent. I mean, because one of the things it represents is... Uh, Australia's Anglo-Saxon heritage, mm. because I believe the model that Depain photographed was an Englishman, yep. so a pipe-smoking Englishman <laughs> lying on a beach after a swim uh, on a Sydney beach. So it's, um, and you you don't have to know that to look at the image, but you mm. look at the image and you see Australia's um, love affair with the mythology of the the bronzed Aussie, for yep. example. Yep. So even if you don't know who the model is, you can look at it and start to question what it says about Australia now versus what it says about Australia when the photograph was first taken. When was Dupain Sunbaker first taken? Uh, He dated it 1937. Uh, Evidence suggests that he actually took it in 1936 um, when we look at the negatives. But, um, look, you know, photographers and artists dating their work, when, when was the idea? It might have come a little bit after he actually took the photo. It's around 1937. Okay. So, yeah, in that kind of... Uh, what uh, kind of pre World War Two, mm. kind of post World War One? So when myth building and and uh, white Australia is uh, indeed, is indeed, and there's lots of things about the image that you know lend itself to this abstraction of, of and this positing of some sort of ideal. You know, the camera angle is very low. You don't really get a sense of the beach landscape at all. It's it could be you know just an abstract imaginary virtual reality space really if you think about it you have this bronzed white male um it's it's like the kind of images of masculinity that you do get in the war memorials for instance it's kind of an abstracted ideal yeah and so for then contemporary artists who are looking and and reinterpreting this image Mm -hmm. how have people chosen to go about it have they for example has anyone picked up on uh interest in the eugenics movement for example and referenced that in their work yeah that that's certainly a subtext in a few of the artists work particularly when they're um when they're championing a notion of a, a multicultural Australia, uh, this idea that, of course, Dupain's perspective was very limited in its focus on a, on a eugenic model. Um, so there's a celebration of, you know, Middle Eastern migration and Aboriginality. And and one of the real strengths of this show is that I think two-thirds of the show, uh, um, of the participating artists are women, uh, which is uh, an intentional... Uh, choice by the curator, Claire Monterey from ACP, to really emphasise the fact that Australia is a diverse and and complicated um, nation. So tell us about some of the artists and, and the 15 artists who've essentially kind of recast the, mm. the image. Yep. Well, look, uh, one of the lovely recastings is this work by Julie Brown Rapp. And I, I guess I keep coming back to this because we're essentially a, a gallery that focuses on photography. And this is a show that while there's a, a strong photographic component, there's also a few sculptural and installation aspects to it. And Julie Brown Rapp has done this bronze casting of some, of someone with their face on the a plinth uh, so it's it's like someone it's like the sunbaker creating a mold or a cast of the sunbaker's imprint on the sand i suppose that in itself suggests the legacy of this history and she's she's mounted it onto a, a lectern so 
you go in front of this work and you're compelled to, uh, I guess, put your face into the, the footprint of the, the sun baker and, and perhaps think about how well it might fit you today, but also being a lectern, I suppose, the the emphasis on, well, what are you going to do? Like, what, what do you have to say on this matter? So it activates the audience in a way. And I think a, a lot of the artists do that in different ways. They say, well, the, this was a problematic image. Um, you're a contemporary Australian. I'm a contemporary Australian. What are we going to say Australia is today? I'm going to say it's going in this direction. I might say it's going in that direction. It's really just, you know, to... to to tap into your previous uh, talk with the liquid architecture people, it is about a kind of polyphony in 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 Australian nationalism. Yeah, and so that a uh, that notion of a series of voices and perspectives overlapping that can be teased out and explored. It's one of the, the things that fascinates me about contemporary art uh, and all art, really, that the way an interpretation of an image can change over time. Mm. And so you can look at an image through, in many ways, through multiple eyes. Yep, yeah, indeed. And that's certainly the exciting thing about curatorial practice is that you're always creating new stories and new contexts for people to, to think differently about images uh, and activate them in different contexts. Now, some of the other artists whose work uh, is in the exhibition, uh, mm. William Yang is mm. uh, a very well-known photographer, particularly a, a social documentary photographer and in later years has become a performance artist mm. as well, utilising those photographs. But I I understand his image on the work essentially kind of queers the this kind of robust bronzed heterosexual image that has been even well it's been that image has been queered for a long time i know kind of gay men who kind of like <laughs> yeah. had that framed and photographed as, as an iconic representation of masculinity but yeah. yang has kind of queered it even more so by focusing on what a, a low slung pair of speedos <laughs> there's a lot of works by by william in the in the exhibition including a small video uh, compilation that certainly pays tribute to that that mode of practice that he is very well known for now, where he kind of gives slideshows and gives his own narrative over the the snapshots, the documentary photos that he's taken over the course of his life. And he's such an interesting artist, William, because of the way his career has unfolded. In the first instance, he was just participating in the gay scene in in Sydney in the seventies and documenting what was happening, and was genuinely fascinated by it. And over the years, he's continually reflected on that body of material and queered it, if you like, developed new kind of narratives around his own memories and own experiences and around Australia's, Australian history of subcultures. And the Bondi project is definitely in that vein. He's always had an interest in photographing bodies on the beach and admiring displays of, of public displays of masculinity in, in all its forms. And But he's, yeah, he's, I suppose, taken that documentary material and woven his own queer poetry through it now in terms of the the images that make up the exhibition uh which uh under the sun reimagining max dupain sunbaker if dupain himself was still alive and came along to the exhibition would he see his work reflected and how do you think he would respond to it because some of the images are quite fairly literal mm. reimaginings of the work and some of them are much more abstracted ideas. Yeah. So he would see kind of echoes of his work yep. uh, clearly. Yep, sure. Look, even within the span of his own lifetime, Max was surprised by how popular The Sunbaker had become, how iconic it had become. Perhaps even embarrassed by how popular. A, a little bit embarrassed, yeah, because it really was just a little camping holiday, um, though 
in those days, you know, him and his, his friends and his girlfriend go down to the beach at Nowra camping. Um, as one of the commentators in the in the catalogue says, you know, they were in their 20s and they were full of sex. And a lot of the photos, if you look at the full album, it's them frolicking in the sand and playing about um, happy-go-lucky, um, privileged, white, middle-class Sydneyites. And... Um, you know, the fact that it's been turned into this such a, a monument, I suppose, would had already surprised Max during his lifetime. I think, look, I, I'd like to think that most artists have a kind of large, conceptual largesse and would be delighted to see some, a little pebble that he'd thrown into the pond ripple out in the way it does. So the exhibition, Under the Sun, Reimagining Max Dupain's Sun Baker, is on now until the 6th of August at Monash Gallery of Art in Wheeler's Hill. Uh, open from 10am to 5pm, uh, Tuesday to Friday, midday to 5pm, Saturday and Sunday. And there are free guided tours every Tuesday at 11am. Are there also kind of floor talks and uh, artist talks and so on as part of the, the exhibition? Yeah, look, we have a really active um, public program and the best way to check on that is through the website of course it's staying up you'll see as you said to early august so we're leaving it up through the the winter and uh, giving that extra <laughs> get, <laughs> ironic yeah. burst of sun i like the uh, that idea of kind of like if you need to get away from the melbourne winter you can go to an art gallery <laughs> and celebrate uh sun baking in the summer sun so uh under the sun reimagining max dupain sunbaker as we said on until the 6th of august at monash gallery of art in wheelers hill melbourne uh, at 860 ferntree gully road and the website www.mga.org.au for more information Stephen, thanks for joining us oh, thanks richard Dolly Diamond is a cabaret artiste originally from the UK and uh, has been calling Australia home since 2009. And this year, Dolly is the artistic director of the Melbourne Cabaret Festival. Welcome to Triple R. Good morning. So how does one become an artistic director of a festival? Well, I mean, you've got to be asked, haven't you? Otherwise, if you just, you know, arrive and be ready to do it, you might not be welcomed. I was asked by David and Neville, uh, who've been running the festival for a while, and they asked, would Dolly be interested? And I said, yes. Immediately, um, I thought, am I able to do it? What sort of work does it involve? And uh, when I found out uh, what it was, I thought, yes, I'd love that. Now, if I'm right in thinking so, this is the second year there's been a guest artistic director of the festival. It was Mike McLeish. Yes, did a wonderful job. Lovely man, isn't he? He is a lovely man and rather in demand at the moment. He's been uh, in a few... what was the, he was in one musical I saw last year? I know he's just recently been cast in something else. So, are you also hoping to use the festival as a stepping stone in your career in that regard? I wouldn't want to do it otherwise. <laughs> yeah, I really plan to use it for all it's worth, and then drop it like the proverbial hot potato. Uh, no, I, I don't mind. I've, I've come from the world of cabaret. I think it's probably unlikely that I'll be snapped up in the musical next year. You never know, though, do you? You never know. You never know. You never know. Now, uh, Mike's festival uh, was focused in and around Chapel Off Chapel, which is, again, the the focus for the festival this year. It is. I know there's a festival fringe that... uh, And I love the fact that the Cabaret Festival is getting large enough to have a fringe. Yes. So the festival fringe is happening at the Butterfly Club. But the the heart of the Melbourne Cabaret Festival is at Chapel Off Chapel in Little Chapel Street, Paran. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of the program, Dolly, what 
is it about cabaret as an art form that obviously attracts you as as a performer, as an artist, and also then made you want to invest in so much time in programming it into a festival? I love the honesty and the rawness of it. Um, you can uh, make up any story you like when you're doing a cabaret. It can be real, it can be unreal. And uh, I think it keeps you honest. You're right there in front of the audience. I guess you are with a lot of theatre and that sort of thing. But cabaret is a lot more in your face, if you like. And I like that medium. I like being able to reach out and, uh, you know, well, slap the people in the front row with, 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 with what you're offering, if you like. Uh, particularly if they pull out their phones and start texting. Oh, I, and I don't mind that. You know, I mean, obviously I don't like it. Um, but if you're stupid enough to do it, then... Um, you're fair you game. Know, bye beware, yes. <laughs> so... As an art form, cabaret has an intimacy about it, as we've established. It has a versatility as well. Mm. Um, And when we think of whether it's the Melbourne Cabaret Festival or the Adelaide Cabaret Festival or the other or the Adelaide Cabaret Fringe, for example, the fact that you can shift from... Uh, a Weimar recreation of Weimar Republic cabaret. You can have um, American show tunes, exactly. and it can be louder, and and or you can have tragedy. You can have intimacy. There's, it really does seem an art form that can embrace almost every genre. It's the old days of variety, and uh, and that is that is the medium that I love, and that means and you can do that in your own gig as well. You know, one minute um, you're trying to get an audience to laugh their ass off, and the next minute um, you're trying to make them emotional about something. And I like that the um, the fact that you're able to do that all generally in the space of an hour, and just certainly able to do it if you're any good. <laughs> now, what? Uh encouraged you to move from the UK to Australia back in 2009? Well, I was visiting and uh, realising that uh, the grass was greener and because uh, I'd lived in Australia years ago and uh, perhaps was more favourite to uh, London and joined my London lifestyle. And then as I got a little older, I thought, no, Melbourne's got it going on and now I, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else, to be honest. No. Does having that awareness of the culture of the UK and of Australia then, has that been an asset in terms of programming the festival and finding artists? Well, I think it's, a, I think it's an asset for my life. I don't know if it is programming, although, you, you know, because you get out and you watch a lot. I love, uh, you know, we're often at events, aren't we? And I, lo- I love that. I love going to see other performers and uh, working out, not, you know, what, whether they'd be right or whether they're not right for this, they'll be right for something else, or perhaps we can work together on something always got my eyes open and uh, I don't know if living over in London I think just probably being more aware of what's going on around the world I, I mean that's just a, a great way to be isn't it lucky to be yeah and having giving keeping your finger then on the pulse of what's what's trending in cabaret style absolutely although this year um uh, definitely a flavor uh, of uh, of Australian talent you know and that was I mean I guess living and working in Melbourne and around Australia you know what's going on over here and there's an awful lot of Australian talent and that um, that's what I wanted this year. I'll be brutally honest as well, um, budget-wise it makes life a lot easier. Yep. You know, getting overseas acts and um, them doing um, just as well as the Australian acts means that why not draw on Australian talent, you know? Well, there's certainly an enormous range of talent. The cabaret scene is incredibly vital and diverse here in Melbourne and elsewhere. Is there a distinctive 
aspect that makes a cabaret, makes Australian cabaret feel Australian. I mean, I'm not suggesting that people are coming on stage in cork hats, for example. No. But, but Although, no. It could be an interview. Oh, no, oh, next year's show, next year's show. But is there, for example, is there a distinctively Australian style of cabaret or alternatively a distinctively kind of Melbourne style of cabaret versus a Brisbane style of cabaret or an Adelaide style of cabaret? I don't think that's a great question and uh, in short, I don't know. Um, but I I reckon there's um because obviously when you're doing some of the acts for instance Scylla is doing Scylla Black so she'll be doing it you know but I, I guess um I think Capray is uh transcends wherever it is you know it, the, that's the idea anyway that if you're doing a tribute to Motown then really it should be I mean are you going to be doing it in the same way as an American act um, probably not, because when I sit and watch something and it's far too American, I get a little annoyed by it. I mean, I don't that. mind watching something on Netflix and it's all American because you're you're signing up for that, aren't you? There's an authenticity to that. Exactly. Yeah. But when somebody tries to be too much one way, I mean, I, I like the music of something, but I don't necessarily know that I need, you know, them to be doing bad American accents. Yeah. So let's talk through some of the program highlights. And the 2017 Melbourne Cabaret Festival isn't on for uh, a, a few weeks yet. You've... Uh, Tuesday, the 20th of June. That's our little opening gala. Yeah. And a little bit of a slice of everybody, you know, those sort of ones. I love those sort of nights. Well, again, coming back to what you said about the spirit of variety, it's a, it's a great opportunity to have a rich array and diversity of styles and the added bonus that if one particular act doesn't float your boat, it's not the whole night. You wait 10 exactly. minutes, somebody else is on. Yes, you can sit there going, oh, God, I can't wait to watch the whole show or don't get me involved in that one. And yes, it's, it's human nature, isn't it? Yes. So the festival program was launched a couple of weeks ago and the festival itself, as we said, running from the 20th of June until the 2nd of July. So now is the time to start thinking and booking tickets. But yes, so kicking off with the opening gala, uh, a dazzling night of highlights hosted by your good self, Oh, Dolly. well, you've got to, haven't you? I mean, it's money for old rope, really, isn't it? <laughs> and you've also programmed yourself in the closing night. Well, you know... <laughs> I um we wanted something at the end of it that was a bit of a um I'm going to say it a free for all and uh, so it won't just be me but I will be emceeing it uh, Cameron Thomas on piano and uh, yes it'll be lots of various Melbourne um, identities and non identities getting up and doing a number sort of a piano bar if you like yeah now one of the things that kind of is defining this year's festival is a, a real sense of a recognition of some of the the, the great artists uh, in Cabaret or the great uh, elements of it. So we've got Australia's Boys of Motown, which you referred to. We've yes. got the, uh, the Scylla Black story, You're My World. We've also got the Ethel Merman story. I know. I mean, I, somebody asked me about this the other day and it was suggested, wasn't she a swimmer? I said, no, that's Esther Williams and a completely different cabaret. John Jackson uh, will be Ethel and uh, you'd be very familiar with John and uh, the, the man's got an incredible voice and we'd, we'd worked together over the years, John and I, and uh, you've only got to spend a few hours with John to know that underneath and not very deeply, he is Ethel Merman. Unbelievable voice, a countertenor, and, uh, well, he sells every bloody number in that show. 
There's also a celebration of the art of Joni Mitchell, the songs of Joni Mitchell, and that's uh, Queenie van der Zandt. Now, I mean, I, I'm obviously very passionate about all the shows, and uh, but this woman is incredible. She's got an incredible voice, and you need to have a great voice to do Joni Mitchell. Um, but also, she's just uh, recently had a baby, and uh, so it's the return of Queenie, and uh, gosh, it's thrilling to have her part of this. Well, you she, know. She's an absolute talent. She's a star. I mean, so. I, it's just hard, hard to make my breakfast, let alone the thought of having a baby and then getting out there almost, you know, like months after and getting on stage and doing this. So good on her. She's going to be great. So as well as that side of the program, which is some some big names celebrating big names, the flip side of that is uh, the idea to focus on shows in development, which yes. is an interesting inclusion in the festival. Tell us about this: the decision to, to present works which aren't necessarily fully finished and fully polished yet but allowing artists to um, explore ideas in the festival. Yeah, I I believe that they are finished and they are polished Um, and like any good cabaret for instance, you know, if you're doing a show then um, very rarely does any comedian or performer not pick up one thing from one night and think, oh, that worked bloody well. I might change that and use that in a different way the next night. I think these are, they are younger and they are um, emerging artists. And uh, we wanted to give them an opportunity to be part of the festival um, in, the, in the idea that they would grow as the festival grows. I know that David and Neville and Ron and Margaret Tobell um, have all been involved involved with the VCA over the years and uh, this is uh, really um, taking artists that have been involved with VCA or, or other such artists and giving them a go, I guess it is, really. Talk to us about some of the artists who then are presenting work in the in the in-development stream of the Cabaret Melbourne Cabaret Festival. Well, Melbourne. we've got Put the Blame on Mame, which is a, a lovely girl called Willow Sizer. And, uh, you know, when you go to watch somebody and you think um, they are one to watch, and I'm often they have that, don't they? But, I mean, I, I, I just I love seeing um, young talent, you know, and thinking... My good, my God, she's going to be good, you know. So Willow is one of them. And also the one that's caught a lot of people's eye um, is, is, is an artist called Piska. And uh, it, it's, it's a duck. And uh, quacks like a duck, moves like a duck. And, uh, but is it a duck? And uh, this, this definitely one to, um, has to be seen to be believed. I'm intrigued. So a bit of clowning, a bit of physical theatre and some cabaret all mixed up. And looks incredible and all covered in feathers. Now, I must admit, I don't tend to... Th- cabaret is a, a diverse and uh, and expandable art form, but the idea of ducks and cabaret, not something that sprung to mind. No, or me in the beginning, but once you've watched it, you'll never go back. Okay, okay, well, there we go. I think you've sold me on that one already. <laughs> so if you want to know more about the Melbourne Cabaret Festival 2017, which is running from the 20th of June until the 2nd of July, jump online, go to melbournecabaret.com. You've got the full festival program there and booking details as well. And as Dolly has said, if you're nervous about cabaret as an art form, if you're unfamiliar with it and you just want to dip your toe into the water, then obviously the opening night gala is the night to go to because you get that splendid array of the diversity of the festival. Exactly. But I recommend if, once you go to that, then don't l- wait too long to book tickets. If you see something and go, that's awesome, I want to see the whole show, try and book the same night because shows will sell out. That's a great idea.
So the 2017 Melbourne Cabaret Festival on from the 20th of June until the 2nd of July. Chapel off Chapel at 12 Little Chapel Street. Paran tickets from 25 bucks, and you can book at melbournecabaret.com. I've been talking to the artistic director of this year's festival, Dolly Diamond. Dolly, thanks for joining us. Thank you, darling. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.